Well, friends, if you have a Bible, please turn with me to Revelation chapter 7. Revelation chapter 7. Uh, today we are in our second week of Missions and Mercy March. Uh, every year we take one month to focus on uh, the core values of global missions and the core value of mercy and justice. Uh, this morning we're looking at Revelation 7. Now, if you remember last week, we looked at the beginning of the Bible. We looked at Genesis. Uh, this week, we're looking at the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. And my hope is for you all to see that a missions is not just something that the Lord commissioned and started once the church was formed in Acts. It isn't just a New Testament concept. Uh, missions is in the entire Bible from start to finish. God has something to say about missions because the Bible is unfolding and revealing to us God's heart for the nations. And I hope to show you that in Revelation this morning. So if you are able, I invite you to stand with me. We stand because it is an act of worship for the reading and the receiving of God's word. Today we are looking at Revelation 7 verses 9 to 12. Hear now God's word. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Please be seated. And would you pray with me once more? Father in heaven, we do ask for your blessing upon now the preaching of your word, um, that it would be good for us not to fill simply our heads uh, but to transform our hearts, uh, not transform our hearts to be better versions of ourselves, uh, but to transform our hearts so that we would look like Christ, that our heart would be Christ's heart, uh, and that our hands and feet would be as Christ would have us do in this world. So bless us, Lord. Meet us here. Speak to us, O Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, George Stott was a missionary to China in the 1800s. And unfortunately, when he was 19 years old, he was involved in an accident. He was walking on a road. He slipped. And when he slipped, he hit his knee against a rock and suffered a terrible, terrible injury. He, it was left untreated for a bit until it required amputation. So he had his left leg amputated. Now, for nine months, he was bedridden. He was lost. He was in despair. He was thinking about his helpless condition, thinking about his future, all the ruinness of it, the uncertainty of what life now had for him. But it was in that bedridden period of nine months that the Lord came to him. The Lord saved him. He became a Christian. And as he soon recovered, he began working as a school teacher until one day he heard news of a man named Hudson Taylor who was starting a pioneer mission organization. He was recruiting volunteers to be sent out as pioneer mission, missionaries to China and what would become known as the China Inland Mission, which today is known as OMF International. Now, George Stott's wife, Grace, uh, wrote a book about their time in China, and I just want to read you a, a short excerpt, excerpt from it. 
Uh, she says, in accepting Mr. Stott for mission work, so Mr. Stott's her husband, in accepting Mr. Stott for mission work, Hudson Taylor man- manifested faith for no society would have sent an amputee to such a country to pioneer work. And Mr. Stott often referred with gratitude to Mr. Taylor's acceptance of him. When asked why he, George, with only one leg, should think of going to China, his remark was, I do not see those with two legs going, so I must. So off George Stott went to China, and he served for 20 years as a missionary before cancer took him home to be with the Lord. His is a story of incredible passion and zeal and conviction for missions. I mean, listen again to that. Why should you, an amputee, a one-legged man, go on missions? To which his response is, I do not see those with two legs going, so I must. I must. And here's a question for you to think about this morning. What would compel you to go on missions? Think about that. What would compel you? What motivation would form the must in your heart to the point where you felt you had to go? To the point where all of the struggle and the sacrifice and the difficulties of missions would be worth it? What kind of must would come into your heart so that you would feel comfortable uh, leaving what, what is familiar and secure in order to go to a, a world and a culture amongst the people that you've never met and make it worth it? What would form the must in your heart? You know, last week we tried to look at that question and we thought about Genesis. In Genesis 3, how God himself was pursuing Adam and Eve, who had sinned, rebelled, they were hiding in sin and shame, and yet God pursued them. And how God pursued us in Jesus Christ and how even now God is pursuing the nation. So last week we thought about this and said, would that be a compelling motivation that God has pursued us in Christ and he's pursuing the nations and he invites us to now go and pursue and be ambassadors, agents sent by him. Well, this week we're trying to look at this question by considering the book of Revelation, specifically this chapter. Now, what we see in Revelation is interesting because it doesn't come at the beginning of the Bible. It comes at the very end of the Bible, the very last book of the Bible. And in it, Apostle John gets this heavenly vision. The curtain is uh, pulled back and John gets to see where God is leading human history, where he's taking all of this, Where is it going? Where is it headed? Now what John sees himself, he doesn't keep to himself. He writes and records for us. And we see that destination in Revelation 7, verse 9. And it's a glorious picture of global worship among the nations. That's where all of this is going. Where is your life headed? And so often we are short-sighted. And we think merely, oh, I just need to graduate from this school, or I just need to see my kids off and make sure they go to college, or I just need to secure this promotion, or I just need to reach retirement. And we think in such short-sighted visions of our own lives, but we need to be captured. Where is God taking us? He's taking us to this vision in Revelation 7 where the nations are gathered. You know, heaven, we often think of it as like the ultimate retreat center. Quiet, secluded, a nice little brook. We think of heaven as 
uh, a retreat from the busyness of life, the bustle of the city. But if you read Revelation, you know how heaven is depicted. Heaven is an international city. It's loud. It's populated. There's singing. There's worship constantly happening. Voices are raised and praises are sung. And, And that's what John is describing for us. Now, our passage today, Revelation 7, is not just from one of the most confusing books of the Bible, Revelation. It's actually from also one of the most confusing chapters of the Bible. Because if you have a Bible, if you look right before what we read today in verse 9, uh, you see actually in verses 1 to 8 that it's this whole section on the 144,000. Maybe you've been kind of uh, caught up with that before. You've thought about that before. Maybe you uh, have an experience with this because you know what Jehovah's Witness, Right? In verse 4, we read, And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. And then that is followed by a list of twelve, uh, a list of numbers, 12,000 people for each of the 12 tribes of Israel, totaling 144,000. And we're like, what does this mean? And I remember as a, as a kid myself receiving those Watchtower magazines from those who ruined my cartoons on Saturday morning when they knocked and, you know, would give me these things and say, well, are you among the 144,000 that are sealed? That's what Jehovah's Witnesses believe, that the 144,000 is a literal number referring to those who, after the time of Jesus, uh, are so spiritually elite that they are given spiritual bodies and they spend uh, eternal life with Jesus in heaven. But the rest of us, those who don't make the cutoff, are like, JV, we're given uh, fleshly bodies to live on this earth. Is that what all this is about? And it gets so confusing But that's not what this passage is about because we so often focus on the numbers of the seal that we forget to focus on who is sealed. And what we read is that those sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. Now, why is that important? John is getting this vision of Israel of the Old Testament people of God in verses one to eight. And then verse nine, it transitions. After this, I look and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every tribe, from all, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages. So John gets two visions, one of uh, the tribes of Israel, 144,000, and then he gets this vision of the great multitude. And we often think of them as two separate visions, but they should actually be interpreted and understood together. Because what God is showing John is that his plan of redemption began with Israel, but ends with the nations. God's plan of redemption started with one nation, but ends with a great multitude from every nation. It started with 12 tribes from Israel, but it ends with the great multitude from all tribes that it began with 144,000 numbered, but it ends with a great multitude that no one can number. That's actually what God is showing by presenting these two visions. And it's John's way of telling us that God's grand purpose in human history was always to lead from one nation in the Old Testament, Israel, to every nation, what will be in heaven. God's intention was always to move from the one to the many. Now, where does the one start? Uh, We just finished five weeks in the book of Genesis. If you remember that, we kind of favored, we're biased toward Abram. So we spent four weeks on him and one week on Jacob. But there was a recurring promise again and again in Genesis and the promises to Abram. If you remember that God had made a promise to this one man and to this one family. But already in that promise so long ago, 
God knew and intended to make a promise, not just to his family, but to all the families of the earth. It's kind of like you ever watch a movie and you come out and then the, when, when you get home, the first thing you, you do is you, you YouTube that movie and you YouTube it to see all of the things that you missed where people are saying, oh, you know, you saw this. And, you know, usually it's like a Christopher Nolan film. You like need a film to understand the film. Um, but you watch it and you're like, oh, this is what I missed. This is what he had kind of put in there. And it was there the whole time. Well, we see that in the Bible that God from Genesis actually had embedded in it the truths of revelation. So God shows up, right? He calls one man, Abram, out of Ur, the land of the Chaldeans, and he calls him to go to the promised land. And if you remember that first promise, Genesis 12, let me read it for you. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I'll make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. It's very interesting. God's promise and intention was for one family to bless the many families. But not only that, God also promised that Abram would be a great nation so that through one nation, many nations would be blessed. So what you actually see is that Revelation 7 is the fruit that sprouted from the seed of Genesis 12. Revelation is a hope that's realized because the promises were sowed into Genesis. My point is this. Genesis always had embedded in it promises and seeds that are fulfilled in the book of Revelation. Now, what do I mean by that? God shows up and he says, listen, your one family is going to be a source of blessing to all the families. That's Genesis 12. God shows up again in Genesis 13. You know what he promises there? I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Now that sounds familiar. Basically he's saying you're going to have so many offspring they can't be counted. Does that sound familiar? It's what we read in Revelation 7. Then God shows up again in Genesis 17. And this time he changes his name. This is where Abram goes um, and becomes Abraham. We read in verses four and five. Behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name will be called, shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. You see that ringing familiar in the book of Revelation? Well, then God shows up again, this time in Genesis 22. And he's talking to Abraham because Abraham has just proven that he is willing to sacrifice his one and only son, Isaac, unto the Lord. And so we read in Genesis 22, God saying, and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Now, all of that biblical theology, all of that academic study of what the Bible says is meant to point to the reality that from the very beginning, one person was always meant to bless many people. One family was always meant to bless many families. One nation was always meant to bless many nations. God from the beginning had the many and the multitude in mind. From start to finish, beginning to end, problems to fulfillment, seed to fruit, Genesis to Revelation. God has been and is in the process in human history of bringing his salvation blessing to every nation, to every tribe, to every peoples, and to every language. This is where 
history is headed. This is where humanity is headed. So the course of human history is kind of like a steam train. God is the conductor. And this is where he's taking us, this glorious scene of the global worship. And God is the conductor. And as it's going, he's saying, all aboard. And so we're either on that train or we're not on the train. We're either on board with what God is doing, his purposes and plans for the nations and gathering them for this global worship, or we're not on board. And this needs to make all the difference. Where God is taking us, where we're headed, what the destination is, needs to make all the difference about how we're living now. Because the destination determines the decisions you presently make. For example, if you are home and you need to go to the grocery store, what do you absolutely need to take with you? Your car keys and your wallet. Now, some of you would throw your phone in there, but, you know, you don't need your phone. You may feel like you need it, but, you know, if you leave it behind, it's okay. So you need to go to this destination, the grocery store, your wallet and your keys. Okay. Let's say you're taking a family trip and you're going down to the, uh, one of the Jersey beaches. What do you need to take with you? Well, absolutely, you need to take your keys. You need to take your wallet. But now you also need to take your phone. You need it because it's your map. It's how you're going to get there. But when you're there, you also need to take beach towels, beach chairs, a cooler. You need to take, you know, large tubs of sunscreen. Whatever can fit into the trunk of your car you put in there. Why? Because the destination determines the decisions you make, what you're packing, what you're not packing. Okay, let's say you're going on a vacation to Cancun and you're flying there. What do you need to take? Well, you absolutely need to take your keys. You need to take your wallet. You need to take your phone. But now you no longer need to take a beach chair. You're not taking a cooler. Even the sunscreen you take needs to be smaller. It needs to be travel size because now you're not filling up a trunk. You're filling up a small suitcase. But what's the most important thing you need to take? Your passport. Because if you want to come back, you're going to need that passport. You see, the destination determines the decisions you're making now. We all understand that. Where is God taking human history? He's taking it to this glorious scene of global worship in Revelation 7. If that's where all of our lives, ultimately where history is headed, what changes now? What are your priorities now? What are you living for now? Our investments, our prayers, our burdens, all of those things begin to change because now we're caught up in the vision that God is advancing his kingdom. And he's taking this good news of salvation in Jesus Christ to the nations. And this begins to arrest us. You know, you know global missions for so many of us is thought of um, as like an extracurricular activity in the Christian life. So many of us think of missions as um, supplemental And I think that's much to our detriment. You know, it's like you have the school of Christian discipleship and there's all these important things like prayer and, you know, marriage and uh, faithful church membership and maybe even tithing is in there. And like, okay, those are the, the core curriculum of, of the school of discipleship. But then like missions is like the after school activity. It's like playing badminton, you know, or, or joining the chess club. Like if you're into it, like that's great. But, you know, it's not really that important. And we fail to understand actually that global missions is a core part of our Christian discipleship because this is where God is taking 
human history. If you honestly have to assess how important missions is in your life, where would it fit in your list? Or don't just think like, oh, it's really important because probably everything in the Christian life you'd say is really important. Like mentally, come on with the list. How important is it? How high up in the list is it? And maybe for some of you, it's not very high up. So the question is how low on the list is it? What ends up happening is that in our Christian lives, we think that the most pressing and important matters are the matters that we face daily and regularly. Things like, how do I raise my children well? How do I be a godly spouse? How do I wisely steward my money? How do I give a winsome witness at work? How do I, uh, how am I a good neighbor? How do I care about mercy in the world? How do I uh, invest more in spiritual relationships? How can I serve the church better? These are the things that we're most concerned with. These are the things that we fret most about. And when that happens, global missions becomes uh, reduced to a lower tier of importance. Yeah, you believe in it. Yeah, you, you'll pay attention um, when it's preached upon. Yeah, a few sermons a year, that's good. Yeah, we're a church that believes in global missions. But outside of anything that the church is putting before you, anything that the church is initiating, how much do you think about it? And you know it's true because what are the things you pray for? Or what are the things you ask to be prayed for about? When you repent because you failed in something, what are the things you repent of? Is, is global missions anywhere on, on that list? You know, what are the type of um, sermon videos you search on YouTube or the podcast you listen to or the blogs you click on? You know, the things that really interest us, you're scrolling through, five steps of raising godly children, yes. <laughs> Three ways to deal with singleness, oh, amen. Nine ways to be winsome at work, okay. Church and global missions? No, what's next? Our hearts are simply not captured by it. And I think it's because we fail to see and understand where the Lord is taking us. We need passages like Revelation 7, 9 to reorient us again. To compel our hearts again. To say, God, what do you, where are you taking us? Where is this headed? You know, when all is said and done, you and I, We'll be gathered in heaven with the multitude. We'll be one among the multitude. And we read in verse 9, what are we doing? We're standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. We're gathered around this Lamb. Who is the Lamb? The Lamb, of course, is Jesus Christ. John writes in his gospel, John 1, 29, the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, on that final day, you and I, among the multitude of the nations, clothed in white, white robes, symbolizing we've been washed, clean, forgiven, reconciled, restored, pure and undefiled. What will we be doing? Verse 10, and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. This is the activity of heaven. Beholding Jesus, worshiping Jesus, glorifying Jesus. This is the activity of the nations. Why? Because Jesus didn't just come to die for you. He came to die for his people. We read in Revelation 5, verse 4, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. 
Jesus doesn't just want praise in Hebrew or in Greek or in English. He wants praise in every language and from every tongue. He wants it from every tribe and every people and every nation, from every country and from every culture. And we know this because it's precisely this kind of diverse multitude that Jesus has come to ransom. He came as a lamb slain for the sins of the world so that all who would trust in him, including you and me, might be reconciled and join this chorus, this great and glorious chorus of heavenly worshipers. Jesus came to win the international praise of a great multitude. And until that final day, he's called and he's commissioned his church so that we might collect his, so that he might collect his reward. And collect it, he will. The glorious scene of global worship in, in Revelation 7 should begin to compel our hearts. Yes, God cares about you. And he cares about your calling to the spheres of life in which he's placed you. Called to be a good friend. Called to be a good parent. Called to be a good spouse, a good neighbor, a good coworker. Called to be all of these things. But so many times we get overwhelmed by the local and the present that we forget about the global and the future. If we get to lift our eyes off of ourselves and the work God is just doing in my heart, and we fail to recognize the work God is doing across the world. When you read Revelation 7, verse 9, we see this glorious scene of, of global worship, and it compels us. It, it, Revelation 7 becomes the, the, the kind of must that George Stott felt in his heart that compelled him to go. And when the vision captures you and captivates you, it in turn compels you. Now you begin thinking, I, what must I learn about missions? What must I know about our missionaries? What must I invest in the, in the cause? How must I pray for these things? Where must I go? How must I send? You see, the Bible tells this grand story of God's purposes for the world. And in it, he certainly tells you to pray, to be generous, to forgive. He certainly comforts the sufferers. He confronts the sinners. He encourages the saints, certainly. But it also reveals God's heart and his purposes and where he's taken human history. And we as a church get this great, wonderful privilege of being invited and called and commissioned to go because Jesus deserves the praise of the nations. And so we must go, pray, send, invest, care, partner, participate. Let's pray.